Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We're trying out something new today on the podcast. <laughs> We're going to bring y'all a, a nice um, behind the curtains peek. I feel like that's what this is. Yeah. I think whenever we post video footage from some of our intensive weeks. I think something we hear a lot is, where can I watch the rest of this? I'd love to see a little bit more. And um, I think this is a little bit of a taste that we want to give you guys a little bit of a behind the scenes as if you were in the space with us to get a little feel for what we do in these intensives. Yeah. So this is an hour, the first hour really of a two hour long workshop that we did in Costa Rica in June at our week-long intensive. And this was a conversation that Danae and I had with the group around personal responsibility. Yeah. And to Danae's point, this is so you can get a feel for these conversations and kind of listen in. And, you know, this is also, these are the conversations that we're having part of the conversations, obviously this is a week-long intensive, but, um, whether it's a weekend retreat, a week-long retreat, or whether we're talking about our private online community, right? These are the kind of conversations we're having in groups. So, we wanted to give you all a little excerpt. Yeah. yeah. Love this one. Okay. Enjoy. So big breath. <sighs> Vanessa and I want to talk about one of our favorite topics this afternoon, personal responsibility or what we call accountability for our own lives. Right. And, you know, the other day I was talking to you guys about how Wayne Dyer is my fairy godfather, I believe, like so much of my life's wisdom has come from that man. And it's so funny because I think like the fundamental principle that he always comes back to in his teachings is self-reliance and personal responsibility. And here's the thing I've come to understand as much as I like really fundamentally agree with those teachings, people have a really hard time with that in women. Oh, such a hard time. That, um you know, when I speak or Vanessa speaks about like, this is your hundred percent and this is your accountability to take. There's so much resistance that comes up. Yeah. A lot of the idea that, um, 
taking responsibility for our lives or bringing the focus inward is selfish, right? Like I just was watching a post before we came in. I'm sorry. There was another spread. That's okay. Um, (laughs) That was talking about like all of this self-care has just gotten out of control and focusing on yourself is selfish. And I got to tell you guys, I think codependency is the most selfish thing ever. Uh, Because when we're in our codependent tendencies, we can't even see the people around us. We have like zero empathy for what they're experiencing. It's all about our fight or flight and our fears and us attempting to self-soothe through this other person using them as an object, right? Yeah, I think recently too, I've seen a lot of um, pushback. I mean, I, I usually say that the way that I talk or Danae and I talk about codependency isn't usually how you'll hear other people, even in the therapy world, talk about it, you know? Um, I'm very blunt when I say we're all codependent. And I get a lot of like, oh, well, overusing a word minimizes its value. And and I'm like, yeah, but it also helps us understand the context of the society that we live in, right? That would be like saying, oh, patriarchy only affects us sometimes. Like, No, we live in a patriarchal system, just like we live within a codependent society. But I think that it's a really big shift and change from what, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people thought about when they thought about codependency. I also have gotten a lot of pushback. We're talking personal responsibility. um, That sometimes what Danae and I talk about is victim blaming. We get that one a lot. Um, Because we are asking people who even are in really awful situations to step forward and start to reclaim whatever form of power they can. Right. And a lot of times people push back on that and say, I think that it's, it's victim blaming. And I, we disagree in many ways. Yeah. And I think even when we are being victimized by anyone, this is the deep breath truth. There's a hundred percent we can take in the part I'm playing in this dynamic. And I think a lot of times what we advocate for is like taking blame out of the equation altogether and really attempting to understand how we got here. And normally, as we were talking about earlier, there are our wounds driving the bus that are putting us in certain dynamics that are abusive or that we're being victimized by. And it's not that it's not true. That's not our fault. Nobody's fault, really. I think even those who are the perpetrators of abuse as we've talked about already, if they knew how to do something other than what they are doing, they probably would. If they were able to see beyond the ways that they have been victimized or harmed or wounded and come into the highest truth of who they are, they probably would, but they don't have access to that aspect of themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I'm getting a lot, I, I, I don't know how you feel, but I've, people have been sending me videos and stuff on Instagram uh, recently, there was a woman who was saying that this new way of looking at codependency is, um, you know, more patriarchal, white supremacist centered, uh, that it doesn't take into account collectivistic cultures. And, and again, I, I feel like we're misconstruing what you and I mean when we even talk about codependency, when we start to look at it like that, because I've, as today and I've said a million times, we're not advocating for hyper independence. We're not advocating for, you know, I don't need anyone and it's all me. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about ownership. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the way it gets used a lot is like, oh, I've lost myself in somebody. It's like, that's so simplified, right? That's not, there's just so much more nuance to what that means. Maybe we should come up with our own word. We should trademark a new word. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it wasn't until I I started following you also that I realized that, because before I thought either you're codependent, but then you, you get healed or you get better. You're not codependent anymore. And so I never felt like I could get there. Yeah. Because I was working and working and working because I was trying to just not be codependent at all anymore. And that's so much of the thinking out there. Agreed. Until I heard you 
you guys, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so free. Mm, okay, I I'm agree. Never, I'm never get it right, but if I continue to try, you know, I keep getting there. That's know? it. That's it. Like, this is a lifelong journey, right? Um, and it's not like I am codependent one day and I am not another day. Like, this would be saying, I speak English now and tomorrow I don't speak English anymore. It's like, if this is how you're raised, this is how you're raised, right? And it's going to be a forever struggle, in a sense, to continue to come back into right relationship and recalibrate, right? Like a continual process of recalibration. That's kind of the way that I look at it, you know? And um, a little bit of what we're going to talk about is this idea that we are, whether it's our internal um, sense of self being kind of out of balance, whether it's external forces, there's a constant pull to become out of calibration. We're constantly being pulled out of calibration. And so things like even the spiritual practices that Ashley and, and Millie went over last night, like we have to find things like this that allow us to continue to come back into calibration. Not that it's going to fix or solve or magically never happen. We're going to always be on a calibration. But what do I come back to? What's my toolkit? How do I soothe? How do I ground, right? So that I can just constantly be in a state of like, nope, this is me. I'm here, right? I'm with myself. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, another thing that James Baldwin talks about is like the quickest way to control a society of people is to convince them they're powerless and tell them who's to blame for it, right? So as long as I believe that my power lies outside of myself, I am easily controlled. Yep. Patriarchy has no um, interest whatsoever in us reclaiming our power. Neither does capitalism, right? Yeah, and so it becomes, to me the most profound form of activism we can participate in is saying, I'm actually not a victim of anyone. I get to be in relationship with people based on who they are, and I get to decide what that looks like, but everybody in the world gets to be exactly who they are. Period. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when I say in health coaching that nobody makes money if I'm healthy. So if I'm a healthy person, that's right. Money, right? You got it. So nobody's capitalizing Yeah. That's capitalism. That's it to a T. Let's keep people sick and externalizing, needing something outside of themselves because it's what keeps it going. Right? I mean, capitalistic, white supremacist, patriarchal society does not want us to be healthy and grounded and spiritually secure and living in amazing relationships with ourselves and with the earth, right? Like none of that, none of it, because it doesn't work to keep that system going. Yeah. So I feel like we want to talk about patriarchy. <laughs> Shocker. Shocker. Um, Did you all ever hear that one episode where I made Danae go an entire podcast episode and not say the word patriarchy? It was like I had to give a dollar and I couldn't do it. I didn't, I didn't make it. I actually think you did. I think you did. You went I think long. you started it. And then I was like, well, you've said it. Let's just keep talking about it. Um, but, you know, something I heard the other day, which is sort of in alignment with this thing we were talking about the other night, which is like a tolerable level of um, permanent unhappiness is the lie that patriarchy sells women is that the exchange for our continued oppression and what we get to take from that in exchange is a continuous level of like permanent rage <laughs> and that we get to live there and that we're like justified in that rage, right? You get to be justified in your rage and that's the trade-off for right. hating your life. Righteousness. Congratulations. <clears throat> um, and I think, you know, we want to talk a little bit about, I don't know about you guys, but yes, absolutely. I think anger can be one of the clearest ways to motivate our way into um, purposeful action. But when we live in a state of consistent rage and hopelessness and hating my life, that is not us taking our power back. That is not um, us living in alignment with what we came here to do from my perspective, you know? Yeah. And I hope you don't mind me speaking to this because you've given me this example before where you've talked about like as a black woman, one of the biggest things that you can do, right, is to like be in a state of joy. Yeah. Like you're not going to take my joy from me. Yeah, when George Floyd was murdered, um, I remember that I was sitting having a conversation with one of my friends and I was like, I just don't know how to do this. I don't know how to bring my little boy up in a way that hates him. 
Like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And my friend said something that changed me forever. He said, Gnosis, we're not going out like that. Because black joy is the most powerful form of resistance to white supremacy possible. People want you to hate your life and be afraid for the life of your child. And we're not doing that. And I tell you guys, it changed me in ways that I can't even put into words. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was the reclamation of power. People want us to be afraid because when we're afraid, we're stagnant. There's nothing I can do, right? It's that fight or flight. And we're in state of blame, right? If we're afraid, it's like, I have to be afraid of somebody, right? So I'm always looking at somebody like, what are you going to do? Who's going to do something? But the feminine way, and I believe we are shifting into an era where the feminine principle is what takes the lead is we move into the space of creativity, We move into the space of how can we collaborate and create something that hasn't been seen before? Not maybe the structures that have been, but the imaginal space of what could be. And on that same note of racism, Jennifer Lewis, she's like, I don't know if you guys know her, that hilarious actress, but someone asked her, um, how did you like get as far as you have with all of the racism in Hollywood? And she's like, because I decided I wasn't going to let anybody stop me. And I was going to figure out how I needed to get where I wanted to go. And if I focused on racism, that would just be the thing that was like the creation of my reality. And I couldn't focus there. I had to focus on forward momentum. And I always think of her when I start to feel like Whatever this thing is, that is the thing I can't do anything about. I can't do anything about the color of my skin. I can't do anything about the fact that we're women. Like, I I love being a woman, but I can't do anything about the fact that there are structures in place that really want to oppress women. But what I can say is we can come up with creative ways to get wherever it is we want to go in this lifetime. And that, to me, is so much more empowering than these systems are oppressing me and there's nothing I can do about it, you know? Mm. Yeah. You want to read from this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have huh? I knew what that was. Oh, yeah. So if y'all don't know this book, it is required reading for every woman on the planet. <laughs> um, women Who Run With Wolves, with the Wolves, uh, by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. I'll put this on that list that I'm going to give you all. Um, I have been, so we read parts of this book. There were excerpts of this book used in our feminist theory class in grad school, but I had never actually sat down and done the entire book. And I will say it is dense. (laughs) So prepare yourself. If we can do something about that type, right? It's so tiny. It's so tiny. Um, It's dense. It takes a while, but it's supposed to be like that. It's not a fast read. Honestly, you need to read a chapter and sit with it and let it marinate and see how it shows up in your life and watch how it unfolds and then come back to another chapter a week later. Like I do believe that's how she intended this book to be written. So she's a depth psychologist. Um, the way that she breaks down the book is every chapter is a myth or a story. And then she goes into that myth and that story in detail, right? And it's all around the reclamation of the wild woman archetype. Okay. So, The particular part that we were going to pull from um, to kind of aid in this conversation, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but I'm going to give like a very 30,000 foot of this myth. Some of you may know it, some of you don't. The interesting thing too about myths is that, so um, Estes is Latin American and she will say, like she'll give an example of her myth and then she'll say, but here are all of these other cultures all over the world where this exact same myth shows up with these like slight tweaks and variations, right? But it's the same story. So the version of this myth that she gives essentially goes like this. Um, this man is in a boat. He's out fishing. He hears something. There's an island and there's like light coming from this island and music and he doesn't know what it is. So he gets closer and he sees all of these beautiful naked women dancing and they're completely in their own place. Like they don't know what's, who's around them. They're just enjoying themselves. They're dancing. And he looks and he realizes that there is a bunch of uh, seal skins off to the side. So essentially the myth is that these women are actually seals, seal women. They come up during like a certain moon, they strip off of their, off their skins and then they dance in the moonlight. Okay. So he sees the skins and he decides he's going to take one. So he's taking one and he's hiding all the women at the end of the dancing. They find them. They put the skins back on. They slip back into the water, except for the one, obviously that he has stolen. 
he confronts her. I'll give it back to you. If you come back with me, he, it sets it up that he's old. He wants to have children. He's never found a woman, a partner. If you come back with me, marry me and give me a child and live with me, I think he says two or four seasons, I'll give you back your skin and you can go back basically to your life. And so she agrees. So she goes back, does that. And over the time that she's with him, she starts to dry out literally and figuratively. She starts to dry out. She starts to, her eyes get cloudy. She's losing her sight. She's losing her connection with who she is. She can't sing anymore. She's losing her voice. All of these things are happening, right? But she does have this beautiful son. Um, I won't go into the second half of the story because I think actually you should really break it down in this. Eventually she does make her way back to the ocean, right? In her skin. And, and that's kind of where the, it ends. And there's a part with her son that's important too. But the reason why I'm talking more about the beginning is because I'm going to read you guys just a couple short excerpts from it that when Danae and I read it, we were like, <laughs> one of those, right? Like a oh, fuck moment. Okay. So let's see this first one. Let's see which one do I want to do first. There's like three. So I do the one of the milk first. Okay. <clears throat> the aggravated theft of the seal skin also occurs far more subtly through the theft of a woman's resources and of her time. The world is lonely for comfort and for the hips and breasts of women. It calls out in a thousand-handed, million-voiced way, waving to us, plucking and pulling at us, asking for our attention. Sometimes it seems that everywhere we turn, there is someone or a something of the world that needs, wants, wishes. Some of the people, issues, and things of the world are appealing and charming. Others may be demanding and angry, and yet others seem so heart heart-trendingly helpless that against our wills, our empathy overflows, our milk runs down our bellies. But unless it is a life and death matter, take the time, make the time to put on the brass brassiere. Stop running the milk train. Do the work of turning toward home. Will you read that first line of that one more time? The aggravated theft of the seal skin also occurs far more subtly through the theft of a woman's resources and of her time. The world is hungry. Here's the second one. The world is lonely for comfort and for the hips and breasts of women. Thank you. Yeah. Let that one sink in. Do you want to read the next one? Or do you want to talk about that first? I kind of want to touch on that for just a second. You know, there's something in the world is hungry. Um, Vanessa and I have gotten a little bit obsessed with this term of how men, (laughs) but maybe the world, the world, yeah, have a tendency to harvest feminine energy. And I think there are many ways that a patriarchal society does this to women. Um, so much of what this book is about is the untamed, wild, dark, radiant energy of the feminine and how threatening it is to a structure that needs to put things in boxes, keep things contained, have people living in fear so that they're easily controlled. And there's something in the way that when we suppress the feminine within a society, we suck that energy out of women. And you will notice the way that women, when they are in that space that you're describing, it's like the life force is gone. Vanessa and I were having a conversation about us both looking at pictures of ourselves after we had babies. And you can see the difference in our life force, you guys. I'm going to like, again all the leaves today, but I met, and it was right after he was okay. It was right after I met her, met her, left her marriage. And then I saw her like six months later and the life force that had come back into her body. I could see it so much so that when she came up to me and was like, Danae, I didn't know who she was. I was literally like, 
hi, I'm Danae. And she was like, it's me. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I just think that it's like, so beautifully described in those words because we hadn't had a name for it until someone talked about harvesting feminine energy and how like the life force is literally drawn out of us and it's normalized, you know? It's normalized and also we participate in that, right? I mean, Danae and I often talk about how, and this isn't new news, I mean, there's research on this, how especially white women are the biggest upholders of patriarchy that there are, you know, um, it's, it's really scary to go against a system that at least for white women has taught us, well, at least we're second in line. It's better than being at the bottom. I'll take the scraps and I'm comfortable enough. I'm comfortable enough. I'm safe here. That's what I'm saying. Being second in line is, is a lot safer than being wherever else I could be. Right? So the second part, she talks about choices. And I think Danae said that she might have kind of alluded to this earlier, but this idea that when we are acting out of a place of and you could use a lot of words or terms here, misalignment, detachment from self or soul, right? Codependent ways of being in relationships. So out of fear, not of need, right? That we make poor choices when we're choosing from that place. Again, this isn't to blame us for making the choices that we're making, but it's to open your eyes to who was I when I made these choices, right? What was I making? What, what lenses was I looking at my life when I was making these choices that now every single one of you who is here has come here partly because there's something going on. There's some kind of calling, right? It doesn't have to be that you're questioning a romantic relationship. There's so many other callings that you're like, it just doesn't feel right. Something is going on, right? And so when you look at some of the choices you make and you're like, huh, how did I get here? Right? So there's this passage that, again, took my breath away. We know poor choice occurs in various ways. One woman marries too early. Another becomes pregnant too young. Another goes with a bad mate. Another gives up her art to have things. Another is seduced by any number of illusions. Another by promises. Another by too much being good and not enough soul. Yet another by too much airiness and not enough earthiness. And in cases where the woman goes with her soul skin half on and half gone, it is not necessarily because her choices are wrong so much as that she stays away from her soul home too long and dries out and is rather of little use to anyone, least of all herself. There are hundreds of ways to lose one's soul skin. You know, it's that thing of so often the messaging that we got around mothers who were martyrs, mothers who put themselves so far down on the list of priorities was this is what we deserve. This is what it is to be a woman. This is what it is to live a life. And I won't even say those of us who have daughters, I would say those of us who have children in general, is that what we want them to learn about what it is to live a good life? Yeah, I, um, the number of clients that I have worked with and I know you as well who struggle with. Yeah. But right. Like my kids. Yeah. But my kids. Yeah. But my kids. And here's the thing, our system of living, and this is obviously just a conversation, mostly for people who have kids in this room, but our system, the way that it's been set up is to keep this going, mm-hmm. right? We are cut off from community. Like we were never meant to raise children with one or two people in one home, isolated from community. That's not how we were intended to raise children. 
So we're not bad parents for losing our shit sometimes. We're not bad parents for being overwhelmed. We're not bad. We're human and we're responding to things that our system is not meant to hold, right? I'm in this whole process. Some of you know of like diving into ADHD and, and honestly how I check every single box. And I'm really torn between is it the system and the society in which I live and becoming a new mother that has essentially like thrown me into all of these symptoms, right? Like what, it's like chicken or egg, basically. Like what came first, right? And I don't think you have to be a mother to even understand what I'm saying. I think all of us in some way are perpetuating or having or showing some of these quote unquote symptoms, right? Depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, right? It's not just ADHD. But I will say that since becoming more aware and saying, I don't, I want to change this. How do I change this? And it's not easy, but questioning, like, what do I need to do to change this? How do I change this? Right? Instead of just being like, well, this is the status quo. This is just how it is. Because I don't buy that. And, and I'll tell you, if this is just how it is, I don't want any part of that. Because my mom was not happy. <laughs> she wasn't happy. She worked herself to the bone. She never, like I was saying, the idea of delighting, rare, you know? And I know a lot of people whose moms were amazing and they had these loving relationships with them. And when I have conversations with them about but who their mother was, they can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. What were your mother's passions? What did she do to fill herself up? And I know so many people who are my age that are like, she went out with her friends, you know, once every two weeks. And they don't have an answer. Who is your mother at her, in her soul? I don't know. Does she know? Probably not. I don't want that for my kid. I don't want that for any kid. So whether I'm a mother or not, I don't want that for the next generation. It's not selfish. It's like the advice that I heard from who said it, but it's like when you go out with your friends and you like, you used to like tell our kids like, mommy's going to work yep. or whatever, like whatever was like an acceptable experience. Mm-hmm. But now I know I'm on I'm going to meet my friends tonight. I think I might've told you that. <laughs> I think it was me. Yeah. Like it's okay for mom to leave the house and yes. look for herself that isn't work. Yes. Like, we were just telling them that we were just <laughs> Yes. Like I'll say, like, I'm going to the gym and she'll say why, you know, and I explain why I'm going to the gym or I'll say, I'm going out with my friends and she'll say why. And I'll explain why. And she can be upset about it. She can be sad. That's okay. It's okay. But I also, also think it's really important in the context of what we were talking about, about the life that we get to create, mm-hmm. that we normalize talking about our lives in the larger context. Like my son will often be like, no, don't go to work, mommy. And I will say, mommy loves her work. Mommy loves her work. Like she loves you, buddy. I love you. And I love, and I'm so grateful for the work I get to do. You know, I don't want to raise a son to experience his mother the way that I experienced my mother, which was she hated her life, but she had to do it to put food on the table for us. Right. I don't want him to think that life is something you have to get through and that, you know, it's just another day that we're trudging along. My mother used to say, like, go into the coal mine. I don't want him to experience me as anything other than blissing out over the life that I get to live because I want him to have permission to do the same. Yeah. So I totally, and that's like in my, my religious beliefs, it's like, person like it's very much like my law and everything and mm-hmm. I'm so with it. I think where I've been really stuck with my like work and I think we can never relate is like right now life is so expensive. You need yes. to have a certain type of job to be able to live, especially in LA. Mm-hmm. I'm maybe single, like you know, and it's like so I feel like I don't have a obviously a lot of options care about we just have the education blah blah blah. But just stay in the price or the you know where like I just I don't see it being something I'm excited to do every day. Yeah. And that's okay. I don't need it. Like, but yeah. I also, like, I don't want to be fake where I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Wait, because it's just not true. But, I, but what you're saying today is like, resonates so much because I'm going to my son to grow up being like, work is the worst because it's like, you did. So it's like, but. But I think you can look at it as work or career is is one piece of a really big puzzle. You know? 
I mean, there's a lot of, um, a lot of Eastern practices that talk about, uh, you know, finding joy regardless, like no matter what you're doing. And they specifically talk about work. It's like whether you're sweeping the floor, you know, or you're, you're finding those tiny little joys, even when it's like, Oh, I'm exhausted and I don't want to do this. Can we find the tiny little joys? And I don't think that that's like Pollyanna ish. I think it's, it's more like, how do I get to construct a life work being one kind of peg? How do I get to construct a life that brings me joy? And can I teach the next generation that they're allowed to construct a life that brings them joy? And that is through their relationship to self. That is their relationship to others. That is their relationship to play, their relationship to spirituality, their nature, right? Like there's so much more, I think, even than just work. And maybe that's where it comes in. And the other thing I want to say that I think comes into, for me, the personal responsibility piece, and this is a conversation I've been having with a lot of clients lately, there is a thing in American culture, and we talked about this a little bit the other day, where we believe that we need a lot more than we actually do. Our kids don't need as much stuff as we believe that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't always need to live in the homes that we feel like we got to keep up with that are literally killing us to pay for And it's tough because then we got to make some tough choices. But I got to tell you guys, I grew up with a lot more than my kid's dad did. And he was so much more grounded in like what matters, to be honest, because he had less. And it's like we were talking about the other day, what they valued was each other and not the things and not what the Joneses are doing down the street that we're keeping up with. And I'm not saying that to like, because we all do it, but it's also, I think part of this like collective awakening is coming into alignment with what do we value really? And why do we value it? Right. If I have a house with like 10 rooms, but none of us are anywhere near each other in these rooms. And my kid's got a ton of stuff, but I'm breaking my back and never seeing my kid so that I can buy him the new Nintendo Switch or whatever. (laughs) My mom just bought my kid, but I'm like, Um, I think we need to check some of like what we're placing value on. And I literally with some of my clients have been like, I feel like what you're doing isn't sustainable and it's making you hate your lives. And maybe we need to look at downsizing our lives in some ways, if that's possible. I'm just throwing that in because I think that sometimes that's the conversation that we have to get real about having with ourselves to not feel like we're just getting through every single day, but barely keeping our head above water, you know? Hmm. Did you you want to read the last one? (laughs) Like, there was one more that we were like, oh. I think it was. I forget what it was. Was this one the development of knowing? I don't remember. There were so many. I've like lost track. <laughs> you guys should see this book. There's so many underlining <laughs> and highlights. Read the one that you had. Well, there was one other thing that I read the other day, and I sent it to my husband. I was like, mm, this. Um, this is by a writer named Trevor Noah in a book called Born a Crime. But he said, the way my mother always explained it, the traditional man wants a woman to be subservient, but he never falls in love with subservient women. He's attracted to independent women. He's like an exotic bird collector, she said. He only wants a woman who is free because his dream is to put her in a cage. Right? I found it. (laughs) One more. We're just going to read this book. Okay, I found it. We're just going to activate the hell out of you. (laughs) (laughs) We lose the soul skin by becoming too involved with ego, which is kind of what you were saying, by being too exacting, perfectionistic, or unnecessarily martyred, or driven by a blind ambition, or by being dissatisfied about self, family, community, culture, world, and not saying or doing anything about it, or by pretending we are an unending source for others, or by not doing all we can to help ourselves. Oh, there are as many ways to lose the soul skin as there are women in the world. 
I mean, I think we also like we name the fact that even being able to sit here and have these kind of conversations about how do I return to my soul? How do I find my soul skin? There's privilege in that. Right. Like we've got to name that. Um, and, you know, Viktor Frankl calls it uh, the existential vacuum. So what he was seeing. So for those of you who don't know Viktor Frankl, he um, a lot of very famous work, uh, but Holocaust he survivor. Holocaust survivor. And so that was around the time when he was, you know, doing his work as a psychotherapist, as a psychologist. And he was talking about how what he was noticing is when people didn't have things to fill their time that they needed to do to survive, right? So it's like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? As those things started getting filled, what ends up happening is you get to a level where there's this existential vacuum where you start to be like, well, but now what? But now what? But now what? But now what? And he was watching a lot of people who didn't have a foundation of like... um I guess things like what you're talking about, right? Like I've got to work all day, every day to survive. And then they had this. Now, I think he saw it. If I'm trying to remember exactly the writing, because I, I remember reading it when I was doing my thesis, he didn't necessarily say it was a negative thing to have this vacuum. I think the way that that sounds, sounds negative. He might have maybe back then and might have looked a little bit more negative than I see it now. I don't think it's the worst thing that we're in a state of having an existential vacuum because we are the first generation probably that's been able to be like, wait a second. What we've been served up is bullshit. And I'm, I'm not going to ascribe to it anymore because, you know, we have the privilege of like, I don't need to work in the farm all day, every day to survive. Right. So, I mean, that's great. But I just, I mean, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I just want to say like, we also have to acknowledge there is privilege in being able to sit here and have this conversation because I don't need to farm eight hours a day to feed myself, you know? Well, yes, and <laughs> right. Because to me, and I think this is what often comes up and, the pushback that we get around a lot of these conversations that we have is like, that's a very privileged way to talk about things. And it's interesting that you bring up, bring up Frankel because in the midst of the Holocaust, what he speaks to is everything can be taken away from a man mm-hmm. except his ability to shape the narrative and the meaning and joy. of it and the way that you hold whatever you were given. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of like logotherapy is what he came up with from his experience in the Holocaust. And it was based on the fact that, what I have seen and what I know you've seen is our suffering comes from the story we tell ourselves about what this should be. There are a lot of people in other places in the world that have a lot less, quote, privilege than we have in the United States, but based on what their values are and what their experience of what life should be and the meaning that they make out of their lives and the like depth of purpose that they have, there isn't the suffering that a lot of times we have. However, I think that to the point that I think you're making, we are living through a time where there is not like the fullest expression of the human experience that each of us are longing to be in and live in. And that's regardless of where we are socioeconomically or what the truth of our circumstance is, um, that we actually have the power to like make what we decide it is. And I think we are understanding ourselves as like little cups of God in ways that we never have before. And I get to decide not only what my life looks like, but how I define my life for myself in what it is. You know what I mean? Because that's the thing with kids. Like kids are egocentric. That's they're very me, 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 right? There is a point in development around adolescence where they start to understand egoically, like you are separate than me, right? This is when we see like our parents fall from grace. When all of a sudden our parents stop being God, it's, it's that time where the ego actually develops to say, oh, you're a separate sense of self than I am. But up until that point, because children are so me, 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 it's always my fault. So even if mom doesn't look at you directly and say something like, do you have any idea what I've given up for you? Every time mom is upset, is stressed out, doesn't have money to pay the bills, like all of these like little things that we pick up on as kids, we turn that into, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. Because for kids, it's always my fault. Right? And so I'm not blaming necessarily, you know, my mom had to pay the bills and she was fucking stressed out that I'm not blaming her for that. But I also think because of the lack of conversations we could have had around that stuff, because of her lack of inner knowing, because of so much resentment and rage she had, I think I embody a lot of like, I am bad. It's my fault. I'm a burden. I'm too much. If only I wasn't here. Right. And here's where we bring it back to the personal responsibility piece for my part. Right. Because I too 
had those dynamics. And Carl Jung said there is no greater burden placed upon children than the unlived lives of their parents. Nobody forced our parents to have children. Nope. I said it. Yep. And I said that. I've said that to my mom. <laughs> and so the ownership that each of us has to take is this is a decision I've made. And so I have to take responsibility for how I want my child to experience the life that I'm living. Do I want them to feel like they were a burden placed upon me when that wasn't an, a role they asked to play? Or do I want them to feel like mommy is thriving? You are a part of it, but you are not my identity. Yeah, because it's, it's this thing like Vanessa's saying that they carry and internalize that is not their burden to wear, that is not their boulder to carry. And we have to take responsibility, those of us who are parents, for saying, you know, for whatever reason I, I made the choice, it's a choice I made. Now, how am I going to play the card that I've been dealt, that, I am, um, yeah. that I'm playing? What's that going to look like for me? I think a lot of a lot of people that I, a lot of women that I work with, and I mean myself in this too, that other message that we got, not just like the it's my fault, right? But the other message that I got, and I know a lot of women get, is the way that our our mothers showed up in relationship to men. Right? Like I am the the need. Uh, the, like I, my identity is based in, uh, which again, I'm not blaming them. They're, they live in the culture that we live in. Right. But a lot of us got that messaging too, which is like, not just men, just relationships. Like I am nothing unless I'm partnered. Right. That came from somewhere. And I don't know about you all, but I watched that a lot with my mom growing up. Like everything was about the seeking, the need for it. And so I think there's that, there's that component as well. Yeah, Dessa. Oh. <laughs> so some of you know, I went, I led a mastery week a couple weeks ago and there were 10 men there and 14 women. And to me, I was like, love. <laughs> My favorite clients are male clients. <laughs> but it was, there was a couple things that I learned and took away from that. One, we as women have got to stop making men the punching bags for patriarchy. Because even when men show up and attempt to do this work and attempt to meet us and attempt to see us, we are kicking the shit out of them when they were raising patriarchal structures as well. And I got to tell you guys, some of the women there literally said to me, I feel like you're coddling these men. And I said, well, I strongly disagree. And here's what they're here. And they're the first men in all the circles I've led in a long time that have been showing up attempting to do this work. So I'm going to celebrate the hell out of them. And sometimes it feels like it's unfair that we as women have to take the lead, but we're strong as fuck, y'all. And we're the ones who birth babies and we're the ones who have the intuitive gifts that Ashley was talking about. There are ways that we are the way showers and there are things that we, can't, we can see that our brothers are really attempting to see and they may not be there, but also there are things that they see that we don't see. Amen. And we have got to stop standing in the space of righteousness. Mm -hmm. Like we are above our brothers. It's just not true. And I really think our work as women is to like take responsibility for ourselves and ground into trust and put the fear down. But what that means is fear is what leads us to parent the men in our lives. The milk runs down the belly. Yeah. yeah. Put on the brass brassiere, <laughs> as she says. How we have compassion. Yeah. And walk alongside This is the work of codependency recovery, really. So much of it. And I mean, let's get into the chart. Yeah. But I think to me, and this has become the obsession of my life, I believe that we should join in partnerships when it's justified, not out of necessity. And I think we have to stop feeling like we are incomplete without a partner, period. I think that is the most fundamental, radical act of resistance that we as women can do. I'm obsessed with it, you guys, because 
I can't tell you how many men have come into my life. John, Vanessa's partner, one of them. My ex-husband, one of them. Like I have men in my life for my support system. I'm just not partnering with a man until it's justified to do so. Um, but what we do is we partner because we've been conditioned to believe that we're incomplete until we're partnered. And then we mother and we resent and we diminish ourselves. We martyr. And we're angry. And it is not serving anybody. Because we keep loving. them infantilized too. That's not loving. And they can't step into their power. They're not stepping into their ability to be who they are meant to be in this life either. Because we're like, well, I'll just cross the bridge for you and pull you across and you'll get there because I'll get you there. And meanwhile, I'll stop wanting to have sex with you as I'm doing that. <laughs> and be angry as hell that I have to do it. And yeah. how is that love? Yeah. And who told me I have to do that? Who told me it was my job to drag them across the bridge? Fear. Fear told you. Fear told you if you don't do it, they won't get there. But I'll tell you something mm -hmm. that a coach told me once, and she was right. The minute I stop doing the thing, people figure it out. Yeah. And that's like under functioners <laughs> across the board. But the minute you stop doing the thing for the person who's not functioning for themselves, I promise you they'll figure it out. It's your like, I got to control. I can't sit in this tension. I got to make it happen now. That's like, okay, she's going to function for me. I do this for the time. If she's going to do it, not knock yourself out. And a lot of times the thing that Vanessa and I talk about is that's sometimes how I show love to her. I let her function for me because I see that it makes her, it's what she knows how to do. Is that me loving her? Well, she's killing herself to do it, but I know that's what she knows how to do. Right. Same with, I, I was listening to Glennon Doyle's sister talking about the resentment that she felt towards her husband. And he's like, I do that because I feel like that's the role you want to play. And it's literally like, I give it to you. Yeah. And she's like, I realized I'm mad at him about something that I am continuing to perpetuate. And I can't ask him to lead if I'm not willing to trust in his leadership. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com <laughs> 